0: Hey guys, Gary here from Horror Court Trashover. I just want to give a quick trigger warning before this episode. Uh, we are talking about three rape revenge films for this month's original versus remake episode. So we are going to be discussing sexual assault at some point, and uh, particularly during the 1972 film. Some of the descriptions there's probably going to be some. Some nasty shit, uh nastier than what we've usually discussed. So I thought I'd just give a heads up before we start, just in case anyone needs to skip certain parts. Uh but other than that, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Horror Court trash over the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And for the first time since our House of Wax episode, we've got an original versus remake freesome on our hands today. <laughs>
1: yeah, I've had a freesome in a while,
0: have we? No, well, not since uh, Vincent Price in September, no. and Paris Hilton, <laughs> and Paris Hilton, and that random sleigh queen from Mysteries of the Wax Museum. Oh God, yeah, <laughs> which I can't remember her name, but she was she was a queen. Um, today we are talking about the last house on the left, which is of course a remake of The Virgin Spring. And had another remake in 2009. Uh, starting off with the poll results. Um, some baffling poll results. Uh, we have a winner of 1972. Who uh, Because we did two rounds. The first round it won by 62%. The Virgin Spring only got 27%. Um, the second time it won by 73%. And 2009 got 38%. So that makes the Virgin Spring last. In the voting,
1: yeah, yeah, I'm gonna put this down to people not having watched The Virgin Spring, and I don't want to sit here and sound like a snob, um, but yeah, if you if you'd seen if you had seen The Virgin Spring, I'm pretty sure you would have voted for
0: it. Yeah, I had a bunch of people message me on my Instagram saying they had no idea Last Us on Left was even a remake. I see. Um, so, I, I think it is pretty much a case of yes. that. It's but an unofficial remake. But at the same time, you know, I can't really judge people too much, considering there's not a bad film in the bunch. No, no, it's not, actually. It's it's, it's really
1: refreshing. There's not a a dud in the uh, in the pack.
0: Yeah, which is it's a nice change, considering sometimes we can't even find two fucking good films for original versus remake. <laughs> yeah. Should I say, most of the time.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's true. Most of the time, there's... Uh, one or two shit, um yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. there's nothing more to say about it. Shit. <laughs> getting
0: into it, we have The Virgin Spring, released in nineteen sixty, directed by Ingmar Bergman. Um, what would you like to tell us some of the films that Ingmar Bergman directed?
1: Um. So yeah, Ingmar Bergman, pretty prolific uh, Swedish director. Um. I think he just stuck to Sweden, didn't he? I don't think he yeah. ever moved to America. Um, But he's, you know, directed some all-time well-renowned classics, such as The Seventh Seal, Persona, uh, Wild Strawberries. Um, He did a little bit of horror. Virgin Spring isn't massively horror, but he did The Serpent's Egg. Um, He did um, The Wolf One. That I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, Fanny and Alexander. Uh,
0: I would say I'd say *Virgin Spring* is a horror film. I would say it's massively horror, but I mean it, it's essentially the exact same premise as *The Last House on the Left*, and that's a horror film. Yeah. And a lot yeah. of the cinematography makes it delve into horror uh, with a lot of creepy shots. I we'll, we'll get yeah, into that when we yes, when course. we get to the cinematography section. It was made on an unknown budget, but it did make one thousand five hundred and twenty eight pound at the box office. I'm not sure if that's a good thing for nineteen sixty. Um, yeah, like a
1: I sometime, I'm going to be honest with you, Gary. Sometimes I don't know where you get your figures from. Oh,
0: okay.
1: Uh, well, that just sounds like wrong. It just sounds wrong.
0: Well, considering it was Oscar winner for best foreign picture. Exactly, it is strange, and but... I don't think uh,
1: as a director as prolific as. Um, Ingmar Bergman would have been allowed too many, you know, box office bombs.
0: Well, i get my sources from the reliable internet. Everyone knows you can rely on the internet. Of course. So, uh, Ingmar Bergman called the film a lousy imitation of Kurosawa.
1: Yeah. It was inspired by Rashomon. Rashomon. So, uh, Rashomon is is a film I've seen. I've been dying to show it to you for ages, Gary. Um, Fantastic, you know, five-star masterpiece. Um, and yeah, I can see where he's coming from. Um, I think he was a little harsh on himself. I can see the influence, but I I don't think it's a, a
0: shitty rehash of Rashomon at all. It received the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film in 1960. Um, which is, I mean, it was a good year for horror at the Oscars, considering you had this and Psycho's nominations. And did Psycho win? No. no? Um it shut but, off, but didn't. But yeah, no, I mean, these days it's difficult enough to get one film fucking nominated at the Oscars as a horror film. Yeah. Yeah, but they wouldn't have marketed this as a horror. Well, no, I suppose. Uh, Wes Craven, of course, remade this film as The Last House on the Left, but it was also um, technically remade, I don't know, um, as Night Train Murders... Uh, which is also known as Late Night Trains, by Aldo Lado, um, both of which were included on the BBFC's suitable for prosecution video nasty list when released for home viewing in the early 80s. Yeah, yeah it was
1: basically the same premise, is not it? Night Train yeah. Murders. It just, yeah. it just happens to uh, happened on a train.
0: Yeah, but Night Train Murders is by those pesky Italians, and we all know what they like doing, don't we? Yes, copying. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't call it The Virgin Springs 2. Yeah, I would have assumed that Night
1: Train Murders was a copy of Last House on the Left. That's so true. I, That's true. I don't. I don't think it's a, a rehash of Virgin Spring. Mm. Um, I think it's yeah a rehash of Last House on the Left.
0: But saying that, it's not bad. Yeah, film. I would was, was say I enjoyed Night Train Murders. It's actually Train not a bad film. Yeah. Uh, Max. Uh, Max Max von Sydow uh, is only ten years older than Bridgette Peterson, who plays his daughter in the film.
1: Okay. Yeah, I don't know which way round. Does she look a lot younger than she was, or does does he make? Did he look a lot older than he was?
0: I don't know, cause I I feel like Max von Sydow has always looked like a certain age. Oh, so
1: she was twenty one. Oh okay. Um, so she was 21 when the film was released, and Max von Sydow was, um, 31. Okay. Okay. Yeah, he looked a lot older than 31.
0: Yeah. This was allegedly a true story in Europe in medieval times, then it was translated into a European folktale, then it was turned into this Oscar-winning film, and then Last Us on the Left, uh, which is the most famous and successful version of this tale, Uh, And then it was remade as something called Chaos in 2005, apparently. Uh, And then it was remade again in 2009, which we'll be talking about today. Uh, So there have been many iterations of this tale. But yeah, today we are just sticking with the basic three. Um, I mean, you know, we can't think of a funny name for five films for original versus remakes. So, you know, no. we'll stick with th- three.
1: Also, I'm, I'm not sure how easy to get a hold of Chaos is. Well, yeah. Um,
0: I mean, it's in the twos yeah. on IMDb, so I'm not even sure if I want to watch it. And next up, we have Last Us on the Left, released in 1972, directed by podcast regular Wes Craven. Uh, this is our third original versus remake with Wes Craven. Is it? Yeah. Nightmare I'm Street Hills of Ice. Oh, they loved remaking his films. They, they, they did. can shocker. Well, I mean, that won't be an improvement. Um, so, yeah, you, I don't need to tell you what Wes Craven made, you know. Um, budget, $90,000. Yeah. And worldwide gross was $3.1 million. There we go. It was a success. Uh, when... When uh, director Wes Craven took this film to the MPAA, they slapped it with an X rating. Wanting an R rating for a wider release, Craven went back and removed several minutes of footage. However, this still wasn't enough, and the film got an X rating. Once again, Quote: Cra- Craven removed footage, uh, but that still wasn't enough. Finally, he put all the footage back in, the original footage, got an authentic rated R seal of approval from the film board from a friend of his, put it on the film, and released it.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, a mixture of red and blue food colouring mixed with caramel syrup was used for the fake blood, uh, which, contrary to most films, blood uh, it actually looks real. It does. Yeah,
1: it does, actually. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, this, this definitely goes for a more realistic Texas Chainsaw Massacre-esque approach to filmmaking rather than uh, the mind-blowing, poetic... Masterclass in filmmaking that is *The Virgin Spring*.
1: <laughs> yes, I think I think the word grittier.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, uh, according to various cast and crew members, especially David Hess and Fred J. Lincoln, actress Sandra Peabody was genuinely terrified throughout most of the shoot. At one point, walking off set, eventually the filmmakers caught up with her and convinced her to return and finish the film.
1: Yeah, yeah. I can't. I mean. It breaks new ground in sort of violence and and sexual violence as well um and I'm assuming for any actress, even if she was a seasoned actress, yeah, it would be uncomfortable, oh yeah, a lot of those scenes, and it's like outside as well, mm. <laughs> you know, yeah, it must be really uncomfortable I'm assuming she did all her own sort of stunt work mm. and search and you know all the
0: bruises. Uh, are probably real by the end of film. Yeah. Uh, in the 1980s, the American video versions contained additional text after the film had ended, reading Coming soon to a Fit in A.U. From the producers of Last House on the Left and the director of Friday the 13th, Part 5, The Last House on the Left, Part 2. You won't believe your eyes. uh last no sequel was ever made. But imagine the sleazy mess it would have been if the director of Friday the 13th Part 5 made a sequel.
1: Oh, God.
0: Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah, whereas Wes Craven makes it clear for his filmmaking that nothing happens in his film is okay, I don't think uh, it would have had the same sort of uh, feeling if he directed it. <laughs> I mean, he he was a full-on porn director, was not he? Was he? he? He worked in porn, yeah. I mean, certainly oh. it West Craven, but I mean, this guy who directed Friday the 13th Part 5, I think he was well known for it. Oh, okay. Um, which is funny, because the, the first uh, Last House on the Left uh, was originally scripted as a hardcore porno film, with all actors and crew being committed to filming it as such. However, after shooting began, Craven decided to rewrite the script to remove the explicit sex. That's grim, innit? It
1: that is. Uh, it that's is. really grim.
0: I'm not sure how much of the plot was left in there. I don't know whether it's just meant to be a straight-up porno or a porno with this plot.
1: Well, I mean, well... Well, I I, I hate to think of it.
0: I know, yeah. It probably would have been a porno with this plot, which is absolutely vile. Yeah. Uh when it was released in nineteen seventy-two most critics found it disturbing. However, in a bizarre series of events, um <laughs> Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars and he got letters from people asking him how he could possibly support a movie like this. I mean seriously, no seriously, Roger Ebert, how the fuck when you call films like Dawn of the Dead disgusting and films like The Hitcher should be banned and whatever, and you enjoyed this? Yeah, that's seems, fucking weird. He
1: seems to contradict himself. Um, maybe for attention.
0: I, I, it must be because maybe, this, you know, this is the least Roger Ebert film I've made. Yeah.
1: yeah, but then Roger Ebert, I swear he wrote, um, Return to the Valley of the Dolls. Did he? Yeah, the the Russ Meyer film. That's weird. Yeah, because that that's pretty out
0: there. Oh, oh, Roger! But uh, due to his size, Martin Cove was originally up for the role of Krug. However, he declined it in favor of the smaller comedic deputy role, and suggested his friend David Hess for the role instead. Uh, Hess wore extra padded clothes for the audition, but was given the role anyway, as well as being offered the music score. And thank God, because he is so fucking good in this.
1: He did really well, and he he made pretty much of a career out of it during the seventies and into the eighties. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he did very similar roles in, uh, Hitchhike, yep, which we enjoyed, yep. um, The House on the Edge of the Park, mm-hmm. you know, he was pretty much typecast, but he does do a really good job. Um, that score, we'll get on to it, but that score.
0: <laughs> According to Us Craven, he never anticipated the extreme reactions the audience would have to last us on the left. Audiences were said Did to not. <laughs> Audience was said to have vomited, fainted and rumored to have happened to one uh, unfortunate moviegoer. I had a heart attack during initial screenings oh, of the film. Else. And do you know what, you know, if this was modern day I'd probably say it's an over exaggeration, but in 1972 I can actually believe that. <laughs> this is not, it's not like anything released before this. My surprise is that... Wes Craven was surprised. Wes Craven was surprised. Wes Craven's a fucking weirder. I mean, he doesn't look like the type of guy to ever make this type of film. Not, not Nor does he look like the type of guy to make porn films, either. Um, well, he only made one, didn't he? Wasn't it just like a nudist camp film? Maybe, or... maybe. I th- I think but he, he just looks like an, a standard guy that you'd like to have as your neighbour because I mean, he's very really quiet yeah
1: but it wasn't he like an English teacher before yeah. beforehand uh-huh. but then he sort of kind of fell into something he was very good at and I'm yeah. sure we'll dedicate an episode to Wes Craven down the line um, but he kind of fell into it and sort of found out that he was very good at it mm. uh, and then made a career out of it but then in the back of his head he always wanted to do a a, a movie about violin player starring
0: Meryl
1: Streep and <laughs> I
0: don't know if that ever happened for him but <laughs> uh, he famously walked out of a screening of Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs in 1992 with Tarantino famously quoting I can't believe the guy who directed Last House on the Left walked out of Reservoir Dogs and Craven responded Last House was about the evils and horrors of violence, it wasn't to glorify it whereas Reservoir Dogs glorifies it yes it is very stylish Rather than Wild Dogs. Um yeah, it doesn't ever try and make violence look ugly, does it? <laughs>
1: really. No,
0: no, it doesn't, no. No. But yeah, I mean that's that's Tarantino. Yeah, I mean if that's if that's it horror, works. Art, yeah, you know? of course, you know. God Lord forbid he watched kill Bill. <laughs> well I know, yeah. But I mean, you know we all we've all made a nightmare on Owl Street, haven't we? Oh wait. <laughs> well that's I know,
1: yeah. He pretty much you know, helped to invent the uh, slasher
0: film. Yeah. <laughs> Which is exactly what that's about. I'd say the third act of this film is fucking glorifying violence. I mean, I was satisfied. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, when distribution companies Hallmark and Atlas International released the film in Germany, they attempted to pass it off as an actual snuff film. Oh, God. I mean, would it be that? You know, would it be that like, hard to believe in 1972? No, I suppose not. I, mean, I, I, I suppose not. They thought... <clears throat> excuse me. They thought Cannibal Holocaust uh, was in yeah.
1: 1980. But then, Cannibal Holocaust feels more real than
0: this. It's fair. that <laughs> type of camera work, isn't it? I mean, you know, uh, to off the top of my head, Nightly Limited, Text and Massacre, this, Cannibal Holocaust, Cannibal or Ferox, they've all got that sort of... It's not found footage, but... I mean, kind of a holocaustist, but everything else It's not found footage, but it genuinely feels like someone just picked up a camera and filmed the shit.
1: Yeah, which is essentially probably what they did, yeah. really. Um, it's the natural setting, isn't it? It's, you know, it's not... You know, t- 20 sort of years before this, it would all have been in the soundstage and yeah. everything. You know, you could have depicted the same thing in the same way, uh, but with a couple of fake trees in the background. So,
0: I understand where they're coming from. Uh, This movie has been banned several times in the UK by the BBFC. Originally in 1974, it was rejected for cinema certificate. In 1984, it was banned again when it became a video nasty and remained that way until 2000, when it was once more rejected for a cinema release. In 2001, it was rejected and remained banned Finally, a video version in two thousand and two was passed with around thirty seconds of cuts for an eighteen rating, ending a twenty eight year streak of it being banned. And it was finally passed and cut by the BBFC in March two thousand and eight. It was also seized by the Australian Customs Board in October nineteen ninety one after a package containing this film and several other banned titles was discovered, and it was released in uncut in Australia in two thousand and four. Yeah, I remember the DVD release in two thousand and two because. I mean, I knew it was a big deal. Yeah. It it was a really big deal.
1: Yeah, so I I had that DVD release, and I bought it from Warworths. Uh, Well, I didn't. I was 14 at the time. Uh, But my mum bought it for me from Woolworths. I'm not sure (laughs) why. Did she know what it
0: was about? (laughs) I'm not sure.
1: (laughs) Unlikely. Um, But she bought it for me, and it had a link, a website address, where you could go onto the internet... And look at stills from those missing <laughs> thirty seconds um it's essentially just you know like body like guts falling out or or whatnot. It's that scene that was the main one um but yeah it it just kind of sort of in indicated where things were going in terms of okay, so we're not allowed to sell you this on d v d but here's a link to a website, you can see it on there, you know, it just makes... Yeah, the early 2000s were
0: a fucking weird time. Mm. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I remember my dad had it, and obviously, at the time, I would have been like, what, 10 years old, so I couldn't watch it. Um, And I remember, even like, even when I got a lot older, I mean, I was like 15 and my dad was like, yeah, you're still, I'm still not watching this movie. And I could never understand what, I never really knew what it was about. I never really read up on it. Um, and then it was only until uh, me and my friend Niall watched it with the box of the band, uh, a DVD box of the like video, Nasty. Where I was just like, and that's why I couldn't watch it when I was younger. <laughs> and it did genuinely shocked me. Yeah, no, it genuinely I was, shocked me as well. I mean, so what? Like, I just watched it. 23 when I watched it and it really, really shocked me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I I was 14 and sort of... The the reason I wanted to watch it is because I love Nightmare on Elm Street so much and it was the same director. So I had to watch it. Well, it's essential viewing. For any horror fan,
0: this is essential viewing.
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah.
0: Um, So as I was saying earlier about uh, Roger Ebert, you really enjoyed it. Siskel and him were divided on the film. Siskel called it the sickest film of the year and gave it one star. Obviously, uh, Ebert gave it three and a half stars, saying the Last House on the left is a tough, bitter little sleeper of a movie. That's about four times as good as you'd expect. There is a moment of such sheer and unexpected terror that it beats anything in the -the heart-in-the-mouth line since Alan Arkin jumped out of the darkness at Audrey Hepburn in Wait Until Dark. What a fucking weird comparison. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I suppose I...
1: Really, I understand where he's coming from in, in the sense of... So he, he didn't like Dawn of the Dead mm. because he thought it was gratuitous, gratuitously violent. Yeah. Whereas Last House on the left is violent, but that's the point. Yeah. And you're, you're meant to feel a certain type of way for the two girls who were the victims of this violence. So I do kind of understand where he comes from. In It's differentiating between... It's very much like Wes Craven said about Reservoir Dogs. Mm. I'm pretty sure Roger Ebert hated Reservoir Dogs. Um, It's that... It's the context and it's the intent. You know, it's not necessarily what's on the screen. Really, it's the intent behind it.
0: Yeah. Uh, much like the actress who played Phyllis, uh, the actress who played uh, Marie, Sarah Castle, also had a horrible time filming the film. Uh, she was uncomfortable filming the sex scenes and the crew gang actors, uh, in an over-enthusiastic attempt to be method, harassed her off-screen as well. Uh, so much of the film's cry in terror, dread and disgust you see her display on screen is quite real. Uh, another person who was disgusted by this whole project was Fred J. Lincoln, who plays Weasel, who says he regrets making the film. Uh, both Castle and Lincoln refuse to talk about it in interviews. Uh, although Lucy Grantham and David Hess, who played Phyllis and Krug, uh respected... Oh, so it wasn't... Who the fuck was the other actress playing, then? Um No, really? no, no um, Sandra Peabody.
1: Sandra Peabody?
0: Yeah, she may be... Uh the animal like woman. Oh okay. Um but yeah, so uh they were apparently quite Lucy Grant from David Hess were quite comfortable filming. Centropy
1: body was uh, Mary. Really? Then who's Sarah Castle? Sarah Castle is Oh, I think she went by
0: two names. Oh okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um so uh yeah, so they actually played uh Phyllis and the actually played Krug were quite comfortable during filming and I've talked about the film proudly in interviews. Well yeah. I it's mean Fred J. Lincoln it, yeah. you know, Fred J. Lincoln is a porn star as far as I'm aware. Yes. So I mean there's a good chance this is probably the nastiest film he's ever made. <laughs> probably.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um a- Apart from Friday the 13th, A Nude Beginning. A Nude Beginning,
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, two future Friday the 13th directors worked on this film, Seanus Cunningham oh. and Steve Miner.
1: Oh, and uh, Fred J. Lincoln. Fred J. Lincoln, yes. He directed uh, Friday the
0: 13th for Nude Beginning. He did. Uh, Wes Craven, of course, let us use the name Krug. In A Nightmare on Elm Street for the villain Freddy Kruger. Uh, both films, the name is used for teenage murderers. And both names are based on someone that Wes Craven didn't like in school.
1: Yeah, I love that story. (laughs)
0: Uh, David Hess, who plays Krug in the film, provided vocals to the songs Wait for the Rain and "What a song Sadie and Krug, uh, as well as the theme song The Road Leads to Nowhere.
1: Yeah, should we just deal with this now?
0: No, 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 we've got a whole soundtrack section, so... Okay, great. Um... (laughs) The ads was movie. movie are, are very famous. The whole, keep telling yourself, it's just, it's only a movie. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, it's just to say how effective it is.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's iconic, actually. It's, yeah, everybody bloody uses it now.
0: It's true. Sean Cunningham has said for years, uh, when he would tell people he produced the movie, people would get up and walk away from him, as if he were a porn or snuff director of some sort. Uh, he said the same thing would happen to Wes Craven, When Cunningham followed uh, this movie with Friday the 13th, Gene Siskel wrote that Cunningham was one of the most despicable creatures ever to infect the film industry, a man who was responsible for Last House on the Left, a movie where we see a gang of killers force a young girl to urinate on herself. Incidentally, this scene was done with practical effects, not special effects. What does that mean? So, uh, basically, someone was pouring stuff that looked like piss down her trousers.
1: Okay, well, we yeah. Special...
0: Well, yeah. It's not going to
1: be CGI, which is pissing us out, is it? In 1972.
0: Yes, thank you. But... When, when Wes Craven originally wanted Murray's father to kill Krupp by slicing him multiple times with a scalpel during the climactic fight, Cunningham uh, insisted that the fight be more explosive and voted to have him killed with a chainsaw instead, which, yes, is a lot better. A uh, scene of Marie's parents finding her clinging to life long enough to tell them about her attackers was shot but cut from the movie. Uh, something that I think was a really great touch to the 2009 film.
1: Yes. Yes. That is... It, that is um, um, well... Wes Craven's night, the Last House on the Left it was a film that needed a remake. Yeah. And it needed some things changing. And they did. And it worked.
0: Absolutely, and Wes Craven produced it, so... Yeah. You know, I think he knew that himself. Well, wow, how
1: much does that really mean? Well...
0: <laughs> but that brings us to <laughs> The Last House on the Left, released in 2009. Directed by Dennis Illidus, who directed Hardcore, Shadow Walkers and Delirium. That's not the Hardcore, but George C. Scott. Oh.
1: <laughs> budget... Well, yeah. I, I knew that, that's uh, someone
0: else. A budget of $15 million and a worldwide gross of just under... 46 million.
1: Nice. Were remakes we still making money at this time? Oh, of
0: course they were, yeah. They're, oh, this, this is when they at their prime. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, not for quality all the time, but you know, for money making. Um, bruises are visible on both Paige and Marie's legs during the scenes in the hotel room. According to interviews, the bruises were a result of filming the scenes in the forest, which were filmed before the motel room scene. The makeup crew tried to cover up the bruises, but since the actors did their own stunts, The marks were too severe to be covered up by any makeup. There we go. Yeah,
1: I mean. I think that's probably similar to the original.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, According to Gorzo magazine, the film was intended for a direct-to-video release in October of 2009. However, after positive test screenings in the fall of 2008, it was decided to release the film theatrically. Which I'm glad it did.
1: Yeah, I suppose.
0: Nobody really knew Last House
1: on it. Well, because, it's a weird one. Because isn't it, it had such a difficult time. Yeah. With, you know, uh, being released on video, being released on DVD, being released on this, that, and the other, in different countries. Potentially people maybe weren't aware of the film. You know, a casual cinema audience Mm -hmm. may not have been too familiar with what Last Last House on the Left was. Yeah. I mean, you think, why the DVD in 2002? Um, This is only a year after the film was actually released and cut. Yeah. In the UK, that being. Um, So, yeah, maybe people just weren't that familiar with it.
0: Yeah, uh, Tony Goldwyn was at first reluctant about appearing in the film because it was violent content. But he changed his mind after viewing the director's earlier film, Hardcore. And over the course of a year, the studio considered at least a hundred directors for the film before finally settling on settling on this director because they were impressed by Hardcore. I think we need to watch I think Hardcore.
1: I think we do, yeah. I mean, I, I loved the uh, Paul Schrader, George C. Scott one. Yeah, I don't think it's a
0: remake, but. I don't think no, no. Uh, first, the film was going to be shot in Westport, Connecticut, the location where the original was filmed, but the threat of hazardous weather caused the production to seek another location. Uh, it would have been interesting to have seen it in the same location. Yeah, yeah. Brie Larson auditioned for a role. Did she? She did. She did. Ah, uh, David Hess was offered a cameo but declined. Okay. And in March 12, thousand nine, Black Book interview uh sarah paxton revealed that the rape sequence in the woods took 17 hours to film oh god that is grim
1: yeah that
0: wouldn't have been nice as an actress
1: especially doing
0: all her own stunts and so yeah, oh, absolutely so would you like to give us uh a synopsis for the virgin spring i certainly will
1: So, again, I'm sorry, guys. There's three films that we have to get through and find opinions on and, and share. So I'm taking it directly from Wikipedia. Um, so, here we go. <laughs> In medieval Sweden, prosperous Christian Per Torre... Now, my pronunciations might That was fine, be, that was fine. Yeah. Sends his daughter, Karen, to take candles to the church. Karen is accompanied by her pregnant servant In- Ingeri, who secretly worships the Norse deity Odin. Along their way through the forest on horseback, Ingeri becomes frightened when they come to a streamside mill and admonishes Karen. But Karen chooses to proceed on her own, leaving Ingeri at the mill. Ingeri encounters a one eyed man at the streamside mill. When Ingeri asks about his name, he enigmatically responds he has none in these days. The man tells Ingeri that he can see and hear things others cannot. When the man makes sexual advances towards her and promises her power, Ingeri flees in terror. Meanwhile, Karen meets three herdsmen, two men and a boy, and invites them to eat her lunch with her. Eventually, the two older men rape and murder Karen. And Gary, after having caught up with the group, witnesses the whole ordeal hidden from a distance. And he decides to do fuck all about it. Absolutely fuck all about this character is useless. The two older men then prepare to leave the scene with Karen's clothing. The younger boy is left with the body, but he takes the situation poorly and is wracked with guilt. He even tries to bury the body by sprinkling dirt, but stops midway and runs along with the older men. The herders then unknowingly seek shelter at the home of the murdered girl. During the night, one of the goat herders offers to sell Karen's clothes to her mother and she suspects the worst. After they fall asleep, the mother locks the trio in the dining chamber and reveals her suspicions to her husband. Uh, Torre prepares to discover the truth about the situation and encounters Ingeri, who has also returned. She breaks down in front of him and tells him about the rape and murder. She confesses that she secretly wished for Karen's death out of jealousy. What a bitch. In a fit of rage, Tori decides to murder the herdsman at the crack of dawn. After an aggressive branch bath. <laughs> yeah, very aggressive branch bath. It's not a branch bath, it's like a sauna. He's hitting himself thing. with branches he and he's naked. To sauna. He stabs one of the older men to death with a butcher knife and throws the other into the fire. He kills the boy, too, lifting and hurling him against the wall while his wife watches, horrified. Soon after, Karen's parents, along with the members of the household, set out to find their daughter's body, with Ingeri leading the way. Torre breaks down on seeing Karen's body and calls upon God. He vows that, although he cannot understand why God would allow such a thing to happen, he will build a church at the site of his daughter's death. As her parents lift Karen's body from the ground, a spring emerges from the spot where her head rested. And Gary proceeds to wash herself with the water while Karen's mother cleans the dirt from her daughter's face. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, that is, for Wikipedia, really spot on. Um. And the reason why is because the film is a very simple film in many ways. Very simple in plot, very light in plot, Um, very succinct. It's not the longest film in the world. You know, it barely touches an hour and a half, but it's layered. Yeah. Yeah. It's full of themes and ideas and, you know, like I said, layers things to really digest and to think about and you know you don't have to have a sprawling plot or you know be it's not even that dialogue heavy or anything no. like that it's just it really is a master class in simple but effective filmmaking yeah um i i just, I just thought it was Really awesome, just yeah. really fantastic,
0: yeah, and what it makes up uh, what it, where it you know where it is simple in plot uh, and such, it makes up for with visuals um, uh, visually stunning, yeah, yeah, and it, as I said earlier, you know it, it is a great example of poetic filmmaking with the way it ends and the way it starts you know there's 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 a certain parallel there um, but you know, in a, in a way, you, you've got to look for it. There's something you've got to sit down and you've got to concentrate on. But if you if you watch that beginning and that end, they match up, but for the complete opposite reasons. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But that brings us on to something that is less classy. Uh, we have 1972's Last Us on the left. That's not to say Virgin Spring. You know, it, it is,
1: we would say, classy. But I mean, for the time, it really pushed boundaries. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It well, really did.
0: 1960 was a great year for that. I mean, you had Eyes Without a Face, Psycho, and this all in the same year. Face
1: and toilet on screen. Um, exactly. 1960. exactly.
0: But yeah, 1972 had The Last House on the left, and it starts with a title card telling you the events you're about to witness are true. Names and locations have been changed to protect those individuals still living. I mean, the true story is from medieval times, so I don't think they are still living. No, no, I suppose not. <laughs> Probably use their names as well. It ain't going really make a difference. Uh, Marie Collingwood plans to attend a bloodlust concert with her friend Phyllis Stone for her 17th birthday. Her parents of and John express their concern about her nipples being clear as day in her outfit and her <laughs> friendship with Phyllis. But they let her go anyway and they give her a peace symbol necklace. They're a bit concerned about bloodlust as well because they sacrificed a the chicken on stage once. They did. Just yes. once. Though. Just once. Uh, Ph- Phyllis and Marie head into the city and on the way they hear a news report of a recent prison escape involving criminals Krug, a sadistic rapist and serial killer, his heroin-addicted son Junior, Sadie, an animal-like, promiscuous, psychopath and sadist, and Weasel, a child molester, peeping Tom and murderer. Before the concert, Marie and Phyllis encounter Junior when trying to buy weed. Would you describe Sadie as animal-like? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> um, but they make a point about it. They want they you to do. think she's animal-like. They do. She's probably the most level-headed of them, to be fair. <laughs> um, he, he leads them to an apartment where they are trapped by the criminals. Phyllis tries to escape and reason with them, but she fails and is gang-raped. Meanwhile, Marie's unsuspecting parents prepare a surprise party for her and bake a cake accompanied with really happy music. And this is the transition we're getting for a while uh, in the film from this point onwards for the
1: whole film essentially
0: you, well yeah until you get to the third act yeah um, but you know you have something really horrific happening in one scene the next scene will be a comedic scene um, and we both have some interesting things to say on that shortly the next morning Marie and Phyllis are bound, gagged and put in the trunk of Krug's car and transported to the woods Sadie bounces on Krug during the car whilst the happy banjo song plays Uh, Marie's parents call the police One of them sits around Telling them not to worry Whilst eating Marie's birthday cake And the police in this film Are the fucking Some of the worst police officers From any film ever They are useless But but it's played for comedic effect Yeah Marie recognises the road is near her home The police notice the gang's car Outside of Marie's family home And they don't bother checking it Because in their words They have better things to do Yeah Marie and Phyllis are forced to perform sexual acts on each other. Uh, Phyllis distracts the kidnappers to give Marie an opportunity to escape, uh, but is chased by Sadie and Weasel whilst Junior stays behind to guard Marie, uh, who tries gaining Junior's trust by giving him her necklace and calling him Willow. Uh, Shit nickname. Phyllis stumbles across a cemetery where she is cornered and stabbed by Weasel. She crawls to a nearby tree and is stabbed multiple times, dying in the process. Marie convinces Junior to let her go, but her escape is halted by Krug, who carves his name into her chest and rapes her. Meanwhile, the cops, who have now received a tip-off about the whereabouts of the criminals, have had a bit of bad luck. Their car runs out of gas, and they try hitchhiking, hitching a ride for the car to drive off with people inside shouting about hating cops. They eventually get off in a lift from a lady with a bunch of chickens. They try sitting on top of a truck, but fall off when, they, when she drives away. Uh, because the drop can't take the weight. <laughs> Marie vomits. Uh, quite, uh, yeah, I mean literally straight after. Marie vomits, quietly says a prayer and walks into a nearby lake where Krug f- fatally shoots her. After they change out of their blue clothes, the gang goes to Collingwood's home masquerading as travelling salesman. Marie's parents let them stay overnight and the gang find photos of Marie and realise it's her home. Later when Junior is in the midst of a heroin withdrawal Estelle enters the bathroom to check on him and sees Marie's piss uh, pis- excuse me <laughs> she, she, does not- flush. She-, yeah. <laughs> she doesn't she does a pest. St- um, <laughs> she sees Marie's peace symbol necklace around his neck she finds blood soaked clothing in their luggage and overhears them talking about Marie's death and of her disposal in a nearby lake Estelle and her husband rush into the woods where they find Marie's body and decide to take revenge. Weasel has a dream about Estelle and John knocking his teeth out of a screwdriver. John channels his inner Nancy Thompson and sets up booby traps. A West Craven trademark. Yeah. Estelle seduces Weasel um, by saying, I've always dreamed of a man who can take me easily. Uh, and bites off his penis after he tells her he can come five or six times if she wants him to. But no need for that, she's going to bite his dick off. Uh, she then leaves him to bleed to death. John takes the shotgun and shoots at Krug and Sadie. Krug escapes into the living room and overpowers John before manipulating Junior into shooting himself. John fetches a chainsaw and Krug attempts to flee but he is in- incapacitated by an electrocution booby trap. Sadie rushes outside and falls into the backyard swimming pool where Estelle runs at her like an absolute slay queen then slits her throat and the police arrive just as John kills Krug with the chainsaw. And that's, uh, that's, that's on the left, 1972. Yeah, I mean... We could talk about the comedy now. Um, we don't have to talk about the soundtrack just yet. No. It's... For me... I mean, for me, this is a horror classic. And I'm sure you can agree with that. You know, it is a milestone in horror filmmaking. Yet again, Wes Craven made something groundbreaking. Well, I mean, his first film was something groundbreaking. Um, It's something he's done in the genre many times. And it is essential viewing. Um, The comedic stuff is weird because this isn't the only film it happens in um, around this time. I mean, look at The Town at Dread of Sundown. Yeah. You know, the the exact same sort of thing. I, I don't know why they thought it was a good idea. Not so much with the talent that drove but with Last Sass on the left, what I found is the comedic scenes, they're jarring, but they're not as jarring as the brutal stuff that happens after the comedic scenes. So it kind of puts you in a safe place. It makes you think that, you know, uh, everything's calmed down now. You know, you can laugh at this. And then the next minute, you know, you've got a bunch of girls being forced to urinate and being raped in the woods it's it, it really packs a punch you know
1: see yeah and this is where we differ um i find it jarring but i, I find it um uncomfortably jarring in, in the sense that the the humor isn't actually funny
0: yeah, no, no, I agree with that. I think,
1: yeah. I think the problem is the humour, and, and the film as a whole, and it's like I said, it needed a remake, mm. because it hasn't aged very well mm. in many aspects, and the biggest one is the fact that, okay, so they've included these comedic scenes, it's either to, you know, break the tension, mm. so it's not a relentless film, you know, it's one of the first of its kind to do this... You know, it's balls to the wall, but it's not completely there, you, you know? Yeah. Um, Or it's to juxtap... Juxtis- pl- that word that I can't pronounce. Um, But as as a direct correlation between the violence and the comedy. Yeah. Which makes the violence feel even... Heightens uh, the emotion. Because we're comparing it to the comedic scenes. Mm-hmm. My issue with that is that the comedic scenes just aren't funny. Yeah. So it just took me out of the film, and I was just like, oh, my God, you know, what's this shit? You know, having to watch this crap with these two inept cops. And their ineptitude, I found quite frustrating, Mm. but not in, like, a a tense way. Their ineptitude wasn't building tension. It was just getting on my nerves. Yeah. Um, So I give props to this film massively, for pushing boundaries and it's not a bad film and i would know you know i would say it's a must watch um but it hasn't aged as well as maybe other films
0: you no, know and i think another thing where it stands out with a comedy is the fact that you know it's not realistic which is fine you know a lot of comedy isn't meant to be realistic but when everything else in the film is realis- realistic yeah. and dealing yeah. with very real life issues. That, you know, Wes Craven was included to say it, it's not okay. You know, he wasn't trying to glorify it. No. He made this film look really fucking ugly and uncomfortable to sit through. That's fine. But then when you add these comedic scenes that are very unrealistic, it, it does, you know, it's, it's a little iffy.
1: Yeah, it, it kind of. It it feels like, and I'm sure it wasn't his intention as a filmmaker, but at times it feels like it's kind of making fun of what's going on. Yeah. You know, and it just it sits uncomfortably mm. um, from a you know twenty twenty one perspective.
0: Would you call this a slasher film? Many people do. I wouldn't. No.
1: No. no, it's it's not. No, not it's not a slasher but, film.
0: Uh, apparently, a lot of people look at it as a precursor to the slasher film. Um,
1: yeah. No, you think shallow films were going on at the same time? Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is nothing like shallow. No.
0: So do you have the synopsis for two
1: thousand and nine? I certainly do. Let's hope Wikipedia does justice again, like it did with Virgin Spring. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah.
1: Building a little bit of tension here. just silence. People probably thought the episode was over. Anyway, Emma and John Collingwood and their daughter, competitive swimmer Marie... I keep saying Marie. It's Mary, isn't it? I keep saying Marie. But with an I. I'm going to say Marie. Who's going to stop me? Um... (laughs) I'm going to start again. Emma and John Collingwood and their daughter, competitive swimmer Marie, head out on vacation to their lake house... Shortly thereafter, Marie borrows the family car and drives into town to spend some time with her friend, Paige. While Paige works the cash register at a local store, she and Marie meet Justin, a teenager passing through town who invites them back to his roadside motel room to smoke marijuana. While the three are hanging out in the motel room, Justin's family members return, his fa- father Krug, his uncle Francis, and his girlfriend Sadie... An animal-like bitch. And she, she is more animal-like in this film. <laughs> uh, Krug becomes angry at Justin for bringing unknown people to their motel room and shows him a local newspaper that has Krug and Sadie's pictures on the front page and which explains how Sadie and Francis broke Krug out of police custody and killed the two officers that were transporting him. Believing it would be too risky to let Paige and Marie go... The gang kidnaps them and uses their car to leave town. While Krug searches for the highway, Marie convinces him to take a road that leads to her parents' lake house. Marie then attempts to jump out of the vehicle, but the ensuing fight among the passengers causes Krug to crash into a tree. Frustrated by Marie's attempt to escape, Sadie and Francis proceed to beat Marie and Paige as they crawl from the wreckage. Krug attempts to teach Justin to be a man, by forcing him to touch Marie's breasts. Page begins insulting him to get him to stop. In response, Krug and Francis stab Paige repeatedly and Marie watches her friend bleed to death. Krug then brutally rapes Marie, during which he pulls off Marie's necklace and throws it away. When he is done, Marie musters enough strength to escape the group and make it to the lake so that she can swim to safety. Krug shoots her in the back as she swims, leaving her body floating in the lake. A storm forces Krug, Francis, Sadie and Justin to seek refuge at a nearby house. Justin is the only one to deduce that the inhabitants, John and Emma, are Marie's parents and intentionally leaves Marie's necklace on the counter to alert them about their daughter. When John and Emma find Marie barely alive on their porch and the necklace on the counter, they realise that Marie's tormentors are the people in the house. As they try to find the key to their boat so that they can take Marie to the hospital, they decide to get revenge on those responsible. When Francis happens upon Marie, they attack and kill him. When going after Krug and Sadie, they find Justin holding Krug's gun. Justin gives the gun to John so that he can kill Krug. Sadie awakens and interrupts John, allowing Krug to escape from the couple. He then realises that they are Marie's parents. After Emma shoots Sadie in the head, John chases Krug. With a combined effort from Emma, John and Justin, Krug is knocked unconscious. John, Emma, Marie and Justin then leave in the boat for the hospital. Later, John returns to the cabin where he has paralysed Krug from the neck down. Because he's a doctor. John places Krug's head in a microwave. As John walks away, Krug's head explodes, ultimately killing him.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, pretty in, succinct, isn't it? You, you also forgot to mention the way they killed Francis. I didn't forget to mention, I didn't write that. So, when they killed Francis, people's work. they shoved his hand in the garbage disposal part of the sink and gave him a hammer to the head.
1: They did, yeah, his was the most brutal death scene, actually. More than the
0: microwave? <laughs> The,
1: the, micro, microave. Microave. <laughs> the micro-ave. The micro The micro-ave was just... Uh, for me, it was just... It felt a little bit silly. I, I, didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't get why they did it. And uh, also, the CGI hadn't aged terribly well that they used. Yeah.
0: But it's a solid remake. Sorry um, man. I mean, you know, it's the 2000s. It's not often you get a really good remake like this.
1: Yeah. It took from the original... I'll say it again. It's the third time I've said it. You know, we've got a threesome. <laughs> Last House on the Left, 1972, was a film that needed a remake. Yeah. It had a solid premise, but it needed updating. It hadn't aged very well. This remake did that. It did it. Yeah. It made it bang up to date, took all the good aspects from the first film, and made it into something new and fresher and in my opinion watching them back to back an actual better film with better attention and you know more interesting characters and more interesting themes and you know there's a lot there's a lot to say um about how it you know built on what the 1972 film did
0: Yeah. So, getting into cinematography, scares, kills, and soundtrack. 1960, The Virgin Spring. Um, I mean, the cinematography is flawless.
1: Oh, my God. Some of the imagery in that film is beautiful. It really is. And something as simple as, you know, uh, the virginal Karen being you know, shot in bright white light mm. for the majority, you know, of her time on screen and the bad guys, uh, the herdsmen, being very much um, drenched in shadow yeah. at times is so simple mm. but so expertly done.
0: Yeah, and the scenes where the parents are planning the revenge and they in shadows as well, uh, you know... Kind of give me that feeling that they're about to do something that the three herdsmen would do. Um, it's very clever. It, it yeah. really is. And that ending, you know, the cinematography and that ending is just fucking insane.
1: Okay. and the shots through the tree branches mm. as if, you know, we're on one hand, you know, close to the action. But almost like we're the same as uh, in Gary mm. and viewing and, and not being able to yeah. do anything about it. I, ju- I just think really just a perfection. Just mm-hmm. Beautiful film.
0: Yeah. Uh, 1972 was shot more like a snuff film, uh, but it works because of that. It works yes. because of that. You know, I mean, it's not a masterclass in cinematography, there's some good shots there. Um, But it it does very much feel like someone just picked up a camera and filmed all this stuff stuff happening. Exactly. And that's why it's so effective.
1: Yeah. It's one of those times where a small budget helps. Yeah. This, you know, the Blair Witch Project, are all helped, really, by a smaller budget.
0: Yeah, and no matter how good a Blu-ray transfer you get of this film, it's still got that gritty feeling to it. Yeah, absolutely. You can't take that away from it. Uh, whereas 2009 I, I think there's a few decent shots in it but overall it has kind of got that 2000s music video thing uh, going for yeah, it massively. Um, yeah
1: massively you know
0: nothing too exciting it
1: looks exactly like the other sort of remakes at the time very yeah. sleek um,
0: kind
1: and I don't know how to describe it's so hard to describe I suppose it's music video style um, but you know when everything just has a bit of a sort of Gloss to it, yeah. And it, it looks very polished, it looks yeah. very polished,
0: um, in a different way to how the Virgin Spring looks polished, yes. you know? yeah. So, for I mean, for cinematography, it, 1972 did a really fucking good job, but it did not. It, the Virgin Spring wins Absolutely, easily. yeah. Uh, it's no competition, um, scares and curls. Uh, scares-wise, I mean, I, I want to say 2009 from Intensity alone. Yeah, I would say 2009. Um, and I don't think I'd say the same for Kills as well. But that's not to say that The Virgin Spring and the 1972 Last House are, you know, they're not scary and they haven't got great Kills. Because they're, they're, it's a different kind of scary. Like, The Virgin Spring is eerie more than anything else. It's atmospheric. Yeah. Um, it's haunting. 1972 is just uncomfortable. Um, it really takes you out of your comfort zone and, you know, it's, it is intense because, you know, because of how realistic it is. Uh, whereas 2009, I think a lot went into deciding how to make it intense and purposely for that of a horror film. And that's why that works. Yeah. I think it's more... It takes its time as well. It really takes its time. Yeah.
1: And I think it's more effective at establishing character. I liked the aspect of Marie's character, you know, and it's very simple. They establish her as a really strong swimmer from the get-go. So when she is swimming away from the, you know, the the killers, Mm. um, not the band the uh, characters when she's swimming away from them it's actually really te- because you know she's a good swimmer mm-hmm. so in the back of your head you're like oh shit she's gonna get away from this yeah there, there, there was there was a question in your head it wasn't like oh shit she's a she's a goner mm. we've seen the original we know they both die. you know she's a goner in the back of your head you're like oh shit she might actually make this yeah because uh, very simply she was established as a good swimmer yeah. in the beginning um, and I like stuff like that it It means they've put a little thought into it, a little effort into it, yeah, to establish some character, and that helps you know us it, it become emotionally attached to them as well, and it, it gives it builds on scares and tension because you care,
0: yeah, and it gives you an up and down feeling because you know we think she's getting away, she's shot, and you think that's it, no, she's dying like in the original, mm-hmm. but then when she comes back, it's genuinely a surprise, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, Kills, again, you know, 2009, I think, it's because, I mean, you know, between 1972 and 2009, we had a lot of inventive fucking kills in films, so, you know, 2009 just tries up in it, and we get the garbage disposal with the hammer to the head, um, even Sadie's death, even though it's just a, you know, a shooting, it's still quite brutal, um, and then the microwave, you know, divisive, um... Yeah, and and of course you know when Paige died as well. That's you know it's effective because it's someone we led to light like before this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think two thousand and nine is a clear winner, but also I think the Kills in nineteen sixty because of how subtle they were and because there's a bit of a shock because it's nineteen sixty. I mean, they killed a fucking kid. Um, yeah, you know it, that that was shocking. That was shocking. Um, and 1972, of course, you know, the, the third act is fantastic with the kills, with the chainsaw, um, and, you know, the whole running and slitting throat thing, the biting off the dick. <laughs> Maybe 1972 should win. Um... I don't know, that's a... I'm, we might have to give that a tie.
1: Yeah, that is a difficult one. Um, I mean, it depends how much of a gorehound hound you are. I suppose, yeah. I mean, gorehounds hounds are love 2009, particularly, um... Aaron Paul's death scene. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, supp- I suppose it's what you... You know. Because I actually think Virgin Spring, Karen's death, is actually probably more effective than any of the others. Yeah, yeah. But it's a simple smack on the head. Yeah. Um, I would... I mean, the gore in me, you know, this is a horror podcast. I'd give it to 2009. Yeah.
0: Brings us the soundtrack. So let's get nineteen sixty out of the way. There's no soundtrack. No. There's no soundtrack at all. That does make it more effective, Massively. I think. Massively. Uh, and two thousand and nine is just very forgettable. The soundtrack. She's a very basic yeah. horror score. Nineteen seventy two, the most out of place soundtrack of all time. It it genuinely it genuinely
1: is, and I didn't really. Realize it because I actually like the soundtrack and I would listen to the soundtrack, but fucking hell does it not fit in this film? (laughs) Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it is. uh...
1: If ever a film didn't need a you know sung soundtrack, it's Last House on the Left. Yeah, (laughs) and I mean, you get some banjo, random
0: banjo music. Yeah, and it, it's what elevates the comedic scenes as well, because there's some very comedic music in there. Yeah. Um. I mean, <clears throat> you know, as you said, the soundtrack as a whole, aside from the film, it's a great soundtrack, uh, but in the film it's just really fucking weird.
1: Yeah, and the, the, this sort of... And it, it's, it's really jarring, and it doesn't make any sense, is that you have this uh, really upbeat song about the killers yeah yeah and but yet we've got this incredibly violent portrayal of mm. you know rape and murder and if the film ends on this upbeat song about oh it's krug and Sadie, oh. <laughs> it's not how it actually
0: so, some of them are actually added to our playlist probably. yeah
1: But um, this ridiculous, upbeat song, and it's uh, much like the comedy, it's very jarring. Yeah. And it it kind of pins point an issue that I had with uh, Wes Craven's Last House on the Left, is that there is quite an emphasis on the perpetrators. Yeah. They get a lot of screen time, and actually they provide some of the comedy as well, which I find really weird, yeah, it does. It just doesn't work, and it's another case of you know. I think he was trying to push boundaries, yeah. but not push all the boundaries all at one go. So, um, and another aspect that hasn't aged particularly well.
0: I'm not sure about timings, but if this falls where I think it did, do you think this may have had something to do with the whole Charles Manson? And his over. This this is after. This is after. This is after. Do you think it's a play on that? Um,
1: If, yeah, if you listen... Have you heard any of Charles Manson's music? Yeah, it's similar, isn't it? It actually kind of reminded me of Charles Manson's music. Um,
0: Yeah, good point, actually. That might have been what they were going for. I mean, for any of our listeners who are not aware... I mean, fucking serial killers are a massive part of pop culture now. I'm pretty sure you all know. Um, But... Which is weird to say. But, um, yeah, I mean, Charles Manson had his own music, didn't he? Yeah, he did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it sounds like the music in the soundtrack. So, I think the fact that this is sung by David Hess, who plays Krug, uh, the main killer in this film, um, and, you know, released after Charles Manson, who was of course, you know, a serial killer and a cultist, um... I, f- I don't think that's a coincidence.
1: No, I don't, actually. Do you know, I didn't look at it like that. That's that's actually a really good point. I think, potentially, that is what the soundtrack was going for.
0: If not, then... Unfortunately, it doesn't, still doesn't fucking work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if not, I mean, Wes Craven's dead, but if not, then Sean Cunningham, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> so who are we giving the soundtrack to? Are we giving it to no soundtrack?
1: I'm giving it to no <laughs> soundtrack. Sometimes less is more. Yeah. And just the sound of the forest. Because I think Glass House on the left, the scenes were more effective without the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. When you could just hear the birds and such.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, The Virgin Spring is our winner for that. And also the winner for cinematography. So, that brings us so far to The Virgin Spring in the lead. Uh, with two and. Nice, and has got nothing so far.
1: There. No, it hasn't, no. That's that's
0: unfortunate, but. Um, I, I. Yeah. And that brings us on to characters. So I'll split these into three different categories we've got the girls, the parents, and the antagonists. So, starting with The Virgin Spring, we had Karen and Ingeri, and who were they played by?
1: So, Karen was played by Brigitte Peterson. Ingeri was played by Gunnell Lindblom.
0: Okay, and then in 1972, we had Marie, and we had Phyllis. So, Marie was played
1: by Sandra Peabody. And Phyllis was played by Lucy Grant
0: from... And then, finally, in 2009, we had Marie. And a slightly more modern name, we had Paige. Paige. <laughs> Marie was played by Sarah Paxton from Aquamarine
1: fame. And Paige was played by Martha McIsaac. Of super
0: bad fame. Um, yes. So, yeah, I mean, when it comes to characters now, this is where it's going to get difficult, because in all three versions, I think they all did a great job. Um... You know, I mean, character wise, 1972 kind of loses by default because they didn't get character development. It's still easy to sympathize with because, I mean, what happened in what was happening to them was brutal. Uh, I mean, as the tagline goes, you know, Marie 17 has died and the worst hasn't happened to her yet. So that tagline alone isn't effective. Everything that happens in the film is just as effective. Um, whereas in Karen and Marie in 2009, you get your character development
1: yeah yeah um I agree with you I th- I think Marie and Phyllis are the least developed out of the girls um essentially, they're just two girls that want to go to a bloodlust concert, yeah and and they liked oh Phyllis liked um chocolate chip, mint, <laughs> ice cream, yeah, but Marie didn't, and that's a bad it, yeah. really. Yeah. Uh, Paige, in the re- 2009 film, um, she didn't get a massive amount of development. It's not really her story, mm. um, but Marie does. Yeah, you marie is. A, a... character. Yeah, she's got a dead she brother. Gets, yeah, the dead brother, the swimmer, you know. Something about them more than, you know, their preference of ice cream. Karen and Ingeri are, you know, developed... Highly developed and layered yeah. characters. In
0: Gary is very unlikable. Very unlikable, and she's meant to be. Yeah, and there's a good chance if the free herders didn't kill Karen, there's a good chance Gary would have done it. Herself. Yeah,
1: because what makes Virgin Spring different in that aspect is that they are not friends. Yeah. They are not. They are not friends. Um, there's this idea that they've got a, a difference in upbringing. Uh, Karen is virginal. In Gary mm. is pregnant out of wedlock um is still worshipping the norse god odin karen is a christian yeah as you know she's christian she's a virgin she's going to church to give the candles you know and they have to be delivered by a virgin
0: well i mean what what also makes this interesting with karen and in is the fact that The sexual assault scenes happen separately. Karen, she's too scared to move. She's too scared to go anywhere. It Mm -hmm. happens to her. She can't fight him off. She's not strong. Yeah. In Guri, it's only an attempt. She gets away. That, I thought, was a really interesting look at the two characters. You, You know, in a way that... In Gary is this person who can look after herself you know she is pretty she's got all this going for her, but she still hates Karen she still hates her um but you know it's it, yeah you see but well, she she watched
1: and allowed it to and she
0: happen, watched and allowed it to happen yeah
1: and that's her guilt by yeah. the end of the film yeah is that she allowed it to happen um yeah I think I think Karen is also uh seen as a lot younger than the others mmm uh in in the the 72 and 2009 i think she's played a a lot younger yeah um which does make a difference um i just i just think in you know there's there's so much to take from the characters in the virgin spring I, i really do
0: um so performances who are we giving it to
1: um, performances, that's, see, that's a difficult one, because I do think the girl that played Marie in 2009 did a really good job. Mm. I do actually think she did a really good job. Yeah. Uh, but then Karen and, and Gary, I, I think the two actresses did, did wonderful as well. Yeah. It's difficult. Acting wise, I'd probably give it to Marie from, uh... 2009 actually and it well, sounds weird yeah characterization it's absolutely virgin spring
0: we'll give it to marie from 2009 but acting for uh, the other girl i'm going to say we should give it to ingeri from yeah. Virgin spring
1: yeah she actually did do really well as
0: well so that brings us to the parents in yes. uh, 1960 we have tore and marita so, Torre is
1: played by the legendary Max von Sydow. And Marita is played by Vegeta Valberg. Yep. Just uh, as legendary.
0: And then in 1972, uh, a little more modern, we had John and Estelle. John
1: and Estelle. So, Estelle was played by Cynthia Carr. Now, John was played by Richard Towers, as he's known on IMDb. But in the credits, <laughs> I oh, shit, I haven't got this written down. Gaylord St. James. Gaylord St. James. <laughs> now, that is that's an interesting... That's a interest, winner. That's an interesting <laughs> name. <laughs> that's an immediate winner right there. <laughs> that is. I mean, he wins
0: based on his name. Gaylord St. James.
1: Um,
0: so, yeah, I mean, Max von Sydow, fucking hell. What a
1: performance.
0: What about 2009? Oh, t- oh shit, yeah. Uh, John and Emma. From, <laughs> John and Emma in 2009. Tony Goldwyn
1: and Monica Potter's <laughs> drags. Yes. So, so John <laughs> is played by Tony Goldwyn, you might know from Scandal or Ghost, and Emma was played by Monica Potter, who you may know from Saw
0: or Patch Adams. She's got a thing about... Um, <laughs> doctor's Wives. Doctor's Wives, and the Doctor's always got some sort of killer instinct thing about him. Um... Yeah, I mean, as I was saying before I forgot about John and Emma, um, is, yeah, Max von Sydow's performance is a fucking powerhouse of a performance. Like, he commands that screen. Absolutely. And that's Max von Sydow's thing. He's a f- fantastic actor. Yeah. Um but yeah, he fucking wins by a mile off. Yeah. And, and that's not to say, you know, the two Johns aren't good, because they are, you know, they're really good with their roles. Um, I found with uh, the John in 1972, there's a certain camp element to him <laughs> in the way that he was just like okay fuck it here's his booby traps he's putting the game, down. game lord st james he is isn't he? he is uh whereas john he feels a little more useless and that's what i liked about him is that okay these people don't how to get revenge on these people yeah and they're just doing it on the spot but then when he has a bit of preparation and he removes the guy's nerves before the microwave kill that oh, i also like that as well you know that sort of clever side to him Um, I think the characters in 2009 had a lot of development as well. There's there's something there between them. You know there was tension. And Mm -hmm. what happened to Marie brought them together again. And I thought that was all really good.
1: And the tension simmering underneath from the death of their son. Yeah. Which isn't massively addressed in the film. Um, I I just thought Max von Sydow had a lot more to do. Yeah. Um, Again, I keep saying it, but it's the truth. Uh, There were more layers to his performance, there's more characterisation, Uh, he had to play, you know, guilt, Um, he had to play a little bit of incest, if Mm -hmm. I'm being honest, there's a a creepy relationship, Um, he had to do, um, oh my god, what's that thing when someone dies? Grief. Grief. Thank you very much. Three <laughs> <laughs> films. It's been a long fucking <laughs> podcast episode. Uh, but yeah, um, he, he's got more to do. And obviously being Max von Out, he knocks it out
0: yeah. of the park. Yeah, he's definitely the winner. Yes. Um, I mean, Marie, Marita Moretta, uh, she, you know, again, never really great performance. Oh, she does well. Um, Emma is really great in 2009. I felt really sorry for her but I don't know if you agree, but I have to give it to the absolute slay queen (laughs) that is Estelle in 1972. This bitch is into revenge and survival. And seductiveness and just everything. She is the absolute ultimate queen out of all three of these all films. All in a
1: Pamela Voorhees jumper. Oh my
0: god, she is wearing an ugly fucking jumper, going around fucking biting off cocks, trying to seduce people by telling <laughs> them she wants to be easy. Oh my god, and the swimming pool scene when me and when when I first watched the film uh, with my friend, we had to rewind it back to watch it again because when she comes running with that knife and screaming, it is, oh, it is perfection. Absolute perfection. So, Estelle, you are our winner. She gets a little character development as well. She does. I mean,
1: she was totally against Cox being bitten at the beginning. Yeah. And then she's totally for cock
0: biting by the end. Yeah. Yeah. No. No one can compete with you, hon. Um, and that brings us to our villains. So, in nineteen sixty, we have the three brothers.
1: Yes. So we have Thin Goat Herder, played by Axel Duberg. De- We have the Mute Goat Herder, played by Tor Isidel. And then we have Boy Goat Herder, (laughs) played by... These are their names. Ove Porath.
0: Yeah. And then 1972, uh, we have Krug, Junior, Animal Like Sadie, and Weasel. So
1: Krug is, as you know, played by David Hess. Uh, Weasel is played by Fred J. Lincoln. Sadie played by uh, Jeremy Rain,
0: And Junior played by Mark Steffler. And then uh, with similar names, uh, for the most part, in 2009, Krug, Justin instead of Junior, because 2009, Sadie and Francis.
1: Uh, So Krug played by Garrett Dillahunt. We've got Sadie, played by Ricky Lindholm. Francis, played by Aaron Paul. And Justin, played by
0: Spencer Treat-Clark. Yeah. So, the guys in uh, The Virgin Spring, they were more animal-like than both Sadies put together. Yeah. (laughs) There's a certain thing about them where... You know, they're very human characters, but it's that sort of question, like, they fucking... Are they human? Because uh, they're making, like, weird noises and such, and they're pu- very much put there as a force, as the antagonists, you know, as a symbolism of danger, rather than human characters that you get to know. Yes. And I think the three actors did a really fucking good job of that.
1: Oh my god, just the, the facial expressions yeah. from the mute um, one... Um, the the shots of him as well, um. But a, a real physicality to them. I, again, you know, it's it's quite simple. It, it, they don't say much. One of them doesn't say anything yeah. at all. Um, but it's the facial expressions. It's the way they're shot. Um, it's the you know the the fact that the actors go fully in. Yeah. Uh, they ain't there to look pretty. They, and, they are hideous in many aspects.
0: Yeah, and like the other versions, you know, they have a kid with them that you leave yourself questioning should I be feeling sorry for this character? You know, do they want to be there involved with this? Yeah. And I think the kid in A Version Spring kind of portrays that the most for the fact that he is a kid. Yes. And, yeah. you know, you you left questioning should he have died? You know, should he have been killed? Yeah. Um,. And I think, again, that's something that 2009 does well in that they leave Justin alive. Um, Justin... That annoyed me a little bit. Did it?
1: Yeah, because I felt that Justin in the 2009 version, he was all like, oh, you know, oh, oh no, this is terrible. What a terrible things happening? But never actually physically trying to stop anything. Mm, yeah. And I, that frustrated me, actually. Because, yeah. Because, you know, in virgin spring he was very young he didn't know what to do um and he was eventually punished in the end really yeah um too much you know but he was um in you know Wes craven's 1972 uh, film he's a heroin addict so he isn't all there anyway yeah yeah And he does kind of trying to stop it um, he was going to take Marie away mm. and, and search. And I understand that just in, in 2009 it is the sort of catalyst for them discovering what happened to Marie and who did it. Mm. Um, but up until that point, he was a bit of a mopey teenager. Yeah, and he,
0: he's that dodgy actor from Unbreakable and Glass as well. I Always. don't think he, his he, acting was terrible. Yeah, he's, it's a bit iffy, isn't it? It's better than in little, Glass and yeah. Unbreakable. Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think in 2009, I think, you know, they were intimidating, Krug, Stadium and Francis, um... For me, they were maybe a little too pretty. They definitely were, they definitely were. they, I think definitely they were just were. a little too pretty. Which brings me to what I, I don't know if you agree, but I think are our winners. Um, 1972, they genuinely, you could genuinely believe these are fucking psychopaths. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, David Hess does a fantastic he he really does Uh, and they all do you know they. yeah they feel like real people and that's what makes it more terrifying and i think the added character development for them you know how dangerous they are you know what they're capable of yeah
1: i I think it verges onto comedy a little too much at the beginning Mm. um but i i think in in terms of actually quite scary They were at times, and and again, you know, David Hess did a a great performance in in Last House on the Left, and that really helped. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I would probably give it to them.
0: So, that means our winners are, the overall is the Virgin Spring, um... They've got the most wins out of us, and it's just a general, you know, a masterpiece in film. Yeah, I I would I would
1: call Virgin Spring must watch for everyone. Yeah. I would say Last House on the Left and and the two you know and the two thousand and nine version I must watch for horror fans. Yeah. But Virgin Spring is a must watch for anyone yeah. who is a fan of film. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. So. I mean, all three of them. Check them out. Yeah, actually. Fucking hell. can't believe we've actually just said that. I know, I know. Check all three out.
0: So that brings us to best and worst of the month. Uh, I think they're going to be same for new releases. I think so. My best of the new releases is Sound of Metal. Yes. Um which is a new film on Amazon Prime about a... You say new. I think it's it's new for, yeah, think new, for new for the UK. New for the UK, UK um, Recently won Oscars for Best Sound edited. Uh, it's about a drummer who goes deaf and that's to come to terms of it, and it is honestly phenomenal. It, it really is. Um, Reza Ahmed, who we also saw in Mogul Mowgli last year. Yeah. He knows how to hold a film, uh, how to lead one, you mm-hmm. know. Um, it's it's fantastic, you know. It is a real respect there for deaf people. You uh, know the subject matter. Uh, there's deaf actors in the film. There's a lot of use of sign language in the film. Uh, the I s-
1: loved what they did. Is that if um, the main character? Forgive me, I can't remember. Ruben, his name, who? Sorry. Ruben. Ruben, if Ruben didn't understand we weren't allowed to understand. Yeah, we
0: weren't given subtitles. Exactly.
1: I I really appreciated that. It's a little thing, but it really worked.
0: And the sound editing is some of the best I've ever heard in any film. Yeah, really phenomenal.
1: Uh, And (laughs) the worst... I hate to hear this and I hate to say it. The
0: the worst is Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat. film I had very high hopes for. You know, a modern-day Mortal Kombat, big-budget gore r-rated how could it go so wrong oh oh my god it is ridiculously boring parts the action scenes are great um but other than that kano is fucking irritating um it, it feels like it's trying to be part of the mcu yeah, and you know, so it's, it's the first time direct, It's the first time director, and he said he, you know, he based it off what Marvel would do, and that's ridiculous. You're working off a video game franchise. Go by what the fucking video games would do.
1: Yeah, and and I said it to you. What I would have done is I wouldn't have gone MCU. I would have gone Quentin Tarantino, yep. and I would have pulled references here, there, and everywhere, and yep. apply them to the tried and tested Mortal Kombat. Yeah games you know that's what we wanted to see and yeah it had the references yeah it had the moments we were looking for
0: but other than that it was fucking basic as terrible fun. female representation like we uh, hardly get the female characters the, the lead character is a new character made up for the film and he's really uninteresting and boring
1: and I don't know if this is a spoiler or not because I've seen it around the internet um but there isn't actually a Mortal Combat no, tournament there isn't a tournament it's ridiculous. Yeah. Why would you not have the tournament? That's what the game is based
0: yeah. on. Yeah, that is our best and worst new releases. Uh, Honourable mentions, we've been doing a Hitchcock marathon. So, of course, it goes about saying the likes of Strangers on a Train, Rope, uh, Rebecca, Vertigo, you know, steps. The Steps so many great
1: films really just yeah some incredible films that we've watched for the first time and we're here kicking ourselves saying oh shit you know why have we not watched? Yeah, the, yeah. Why have we not watched these absolute masterpieces before?
0: I mean, one of my worst honorable mentions is also a Hitchcock film. It's Young and Innocent. Yeah, that, that was, wasn't that was so great.
1: Shit. That's that's early uh, Hitchcock, and it weren't too great.
0: But I believe you've got something a little more below the barrel. Yeah, so uh,
1: Gary made me watch
0: X Men. Whoa! Origins, oh, I was going to
1: say the films as a whole. <laughs> What do you mean? I thought
0: you were going to say Gary and watched the X Men films.
1: Uh, No, no, there were some good X Men films. Uh, X Men, X 2. Well, those two. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I watched X Men Origins Wolverine for the first time this this month, and it was awful, truly awful. You said you wanted to watch it. Really bad, really, just in every conceivable way. (laughs) I hated it. Really, I did not have a good time. Yeah. We haven't got enough time left on the <laughs> podcast
0: for to, to me to tell you exactly why, but you know it was shit. So yes, that's our best and worst of the month. Hit us up on social media. We are Horracle Trash over on Facebook and Instagram. Horracle Trash on Twitter. Let us know what you think of the Last House on the Left, The Virgin Spring, and any of the best and worst we spoke about. Uh, also, if you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe, like and follow on everything else. Check out our YouTube, I'll Now That's What I Call, Horror Court Tradition of a Spotify playlist where we have the songs from Last House on the left on there. Uh, we, well, first of all, I'm Dad at Gaz19 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram and Gazcruz19 on Twitter. Second of all, I'm ChrisBuck823 oh. on Instagram, Letterboxd and Twitter. Thank you for that. Um... We'll be back on Tuesday with our May the 4th special where we're talking about both Ewoks films, which I'm thrilled about, cannot wait. And next month's original versus remake, we'll be back talking about Poltergeist. <gasps> nice. Yes. That's first time yes. I've heard that,
1: actually. Oh, well, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> first time I listened,
0: maybe. Um, but yeah, looking forward to that. It should be fun. Yeah, yeah. I won't give my opinions now. I'll say that's a surprise for the episode. (laughs) Uh, But we will be talking about the controversy of who directed the original Poltergeist. (gasps) (laughs) So we'll see you on Tuesday. Bye.